0: Are you that weirdo who's ready for part two? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. Hi, welcome or welcome back. I'm Cassie. And I'm Tiffany. And this is Happy Hour Gets Weird. And it is a part two to a two-part series Am I already confusing people with saying two too many times?
1: (laughs) Drink every time Cassie says two for the rest of the hour.
0: (laughs) Yes. And um, this episode is the conclusion to our John Robinson Midwest Conman turned serial killer two-part series. So if you're new here, go back and listen to part one and then come back because if you don't, you're probably going to be super lost.
1: Yeah. There is a lot to unpack in part one. And part two. Actually, this whole thing. There's just a lot to unpack in general when it comes to this piece of shit. Exactly.
0: All right. So we usually drink a cocktail along with our episodes. And because this is a two-part series, we did a two-part series on the French 75. The first one was a Meyer lemon French 75. I think I forgot to say that. Whoopsie-daisy. And this one is a pineapple basil French 75 slushy. Why are you so fancy? I I just, I am who I am. (laughs) Never change. Never change.
1: (laughs) And if you want to check out pictures of these cocktails and the recipe, please check out our Instagram. It is so fun over there. And if you ever want to reach out to us, I recommend going through Instagram as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's the way to go. Yes, absolutely. Um, All right. So let's get right
0: into it. I just want to issue a trigger warning. We are going to be discussing graphic details of crime scene evidence and the abuse of women. And once again, I'm going to name our sources. We read the book titled Anyone You Want Me To Be? A True Story of Sex and Death on the Internet by John Douglas and Stephen Singular. And you know, John Douglas is the OG of profiling the very first FBI profiler. He started the whole program. This was a pretty good book to read.
1: He has a lot of side quests in the book that are super fascinating because he has... Seen it all, done it all, been everywhere. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Without further ado, we last left
0: off with Gina. And I I have a couple corrections in this, this part of the series. I pronounced her name Jenna in part one, and it's actually Gina. And I am so sorry for that. So Gina, moving forward, her last name is Milleron. Robinson had lured her to Kansas with a promise of a job and some light BDSM but when she met John Robinson at an extended stay hotel after the sexual encounters went way beyond her level of comfort and she also discovered John Robinson had given her a fake name he gave her the name Jim Turner Gina felt like she had been taken advantage of so visibly upset she ran down to the front desk and asked the clerk to help her call the police and if you remember a task force had been surveilling john robinson for months at this point so when a detective Mm -hmm. yeah so when a detective showed up on the scene he knew this could be the break they were waiting for the task force was worried robinson would come back to the hotel so they took gina to a safe house And immediately the heads of the task force went to district attorney, Paul Morrison, who was leading the operation to ask for the go ahead, but Morrison wasn't quite ready. He wanted the case to be rock solid because Robinson had slipped through their fingers so many times before. And not just this law enforcement agency, but many law enforcement agencies, John Robinson was a slippery operator and they really needed evidence to be solid. In part one, I mentioned Laura or Laura from Nova Scotia. She was an online friend of Suzette Troughton, who was one of the missing women associated with Robinson. And I believe she was, they they kind of focused, not that they didn't um, have the other victims in mind, but Suzette was the most recent. So she was kind of the case that they're trying to to get a break on so they can mm-hmm. they could lead into the other missing women cases.
1: Yeah, and they ended up having a lot of evidence with Suzette, mm-hmm. which I think is why um, she becomes such a big part of this mm-hmm. case. Exactly. And Lore, I mean, she really, really tried to get this guy. She did.
0: She was working with the task force and had been emailing, per their request, with john robinson for weeks trying to get him to confess to something and i mean of course he didn't and even more disappointing the task force hadn't found any physical evidence by trailing john robinson or going through his trash or any of that um for Mm -hmm. suzette's whereabouts deceased or alive or any of the other missing women for that matter So D.A. Morrison wanted to hold off until they had airtight evidence, but things changed when Morrison got wind of John Robinson's next targets. One was a local 19-year-old single mother with an infant, and another target was a divorced single mother of an eight-year-old who lived in Michigan.
1: So scary. Yes. And that's
0: really what changed the DA's mind. He couldn't wait any longer. You know, we talked about this case being a fine line for law enforcement. It was tricky to investigate or break in or bust up when an adult female consensually goes to visit Robinson, and they, mm-hmm. they, they the law enforcement didn't know much about BDSM. They didn't realize that what was happening was most of the time non-consensual, when they were listening in on the hotel rooms but when they saw that small children were getting involved at the will of the adults in the situation he he had he he had to um give the task force the green light
1: yeah especially because in this situation there was already one baby that at this point was missing
0: and a teenager debbie faith was 15. oh
1: yeah yeah oh my god
0: yeah this guy. okay yeah so the green light, the wheels of justice were sent in motion. I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> um, early Friday morning, June 2nd of 2000, the task force descended upon Santa Barbara Estates trailer park. Nancy, John's wife, had already left for work that morning. Detectives Jack Boyer, Don Lehman, Dan Owsley, and Mike Lother were there. Actually, Detective Jack Boyer made the arrest, and the rest of the task force got to collecting evidence.
1: Detectives in the crime lab combed through the modular home, and they collected so much evidence. Mm -hmm. They found social security forms for Debbie and Sheila Faith, Mm -hmm. a blank sheet of paper that was signed by Lisa Stassi, which incredibly was 15 years old Mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah credit cards in the names of his aliases, hotel receipts that corroborated hotel stays of the victims. They also confiscated computers, a fax machine, and his truck. Yes.
0: The detectives questioned Nancy, um, I, I think a little bit after they raided the modular home. Ultimately, they decided she wasn't guilty of any crime. She wasn't an accomplice. They released her, and she disappeared from the trailer park like poof gone in the wind a magician disappearing act later that day detectives searched need more storage in olathe which i mispronounced that last time too
1: (laughs) well it doesn't look like it would be pronounced olathe it looks like it would be that's yeah exactly
0: um this was the closest storage unit to john's home And it was one of two storage facilities that he was renting. In this storage unit, they found 15 years of crap. This stupid pack rat decided to keep, and most of it implicated him in multiple murders. They found Suzette's birth certificate, her social security card, 42 pre-addressed envelopes to her friends and family, and 31 blank sheets of paper signed Olivia Suzette a slave contract signed by Suzette several nude photos and a sex tape Suzette and Robinson had made they found Vicky Newfield's bag of sex toys remember that was a psychologist from Texas Mm -hmm. CSI discovered items belonging to Isabella okay and I need to apologize for this too my spell check corrected all of Isabella's name without the A. So last episode, I mis- I mispronounced her name as Isabelle and I-, and I sincerely apologize for that. Her name is Isabella. They found Isabella's Kansas driver's license, her Purdue college ID, also another slave contract signed by her. They found Alicia Cox's signature at the bottom of blank sheets of paper. And remember Alicia C- Cox almost didn't make it they were literally hours away from you know quote unquote traveling
1: yeah after he had her sign a bunch of things and do all of the typical things he did before he did something really terrible yes and um they found that stupid ass cowboy picture that
0: he took of himself that he sent to all the women online and then in a case They found leather floggers, blindfolds, paddles, clothespins, and three golf balls in a Ziploc bag. That was literally a lot to unpack. Wow. They had a very busy day. They weren't stopping because the next day, June 3rd, the task force headed to Lasinia. Okay, I mispronounced that as well. I'm going to say Lasinia. I know there's two ways to pronounce it, but I'm going with Lasinia. And this was a 16-acre farm about an hour south of his home that he had had for, I think, years, a few, more than a few years. Mm-hmm. They And he went there often. Um, so they went down to the farm. CSI and detectives scoured the property, including the snake-infested pond. Uh, they drained it. And it said in the book that um, – They shot at snakes throughout the day. I don't know how, I don't,
1: like, could you actually kill a snake with a gun? That would be a hard target. But it seems like it would be a very difficult target. But if it's a rattlesnake, I guess you got to at least scare it away. Yeah,
0: yeah. I don't know. Oh, that's a good point. Um, They drained the pond, but all they found was the previous owner's truck. He had sank himself so the
1: ex-wife wouldn't
0: get it in their divorce.
1: Um, that part was like a little bit of levity that I actually really needed at this section of the book because it was so dark and heavy. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this topic was pretty intense. But just that moment, just picturing some old farmer who's like, fuck you, Stacy, and then just like put a brick on the gas pedal and just watched his truck just go into a pond. It made me chuckle.
0: <laughs> me too. It you couldn't have said it. Uh, more perfectly than that because this was a pretty dark part in the book. Um, CSI checked the pole barn and the trailer on the property. they practically had searched everywhere and they hadn't found a single shred of evidence yet. CSI wasn't done with the trailer, but it they you know everyone was on the verge of frustration because this had been a lot of work and no evidence had turned up yet. but, they did have cadaver dogs with them and one of the cadaver dogs picked up a scent around a shed next to the trailer. The shed was surrounded by kind of tall grass and there was some yard equipment like an outboard motor, a couple blue plastic barrels, but behind all of that were two bright yellow 85 gallon metal barrels. Sergeant Rick Roth of the Lynn County Sheriff's Office went over to one of the barrels. He kind of eased it away from the shed. He tipped it on its side and rolled it to a clearing and then set it upright again. And a reddish liquid oozed from the lid and dripped down the side. And at this point, the cadaver dog instantly marked on that liquid. Um, he went for the second barrel and this time he kept it upright And they started to recognize the distinct smell of decomposition. The leader of the CSI team opened the barrel with a pair of pliers and the contents shocked seasoned law enforcement officers. Inside the barrel was the contorted, badly decomposed body of Suzette Troughton sitting in about a foot of rancid liquid. And it was later determined her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. They opened the second barrel and discovered another body. And this was the same thing, badly decomposed body of Isabella Lewica. And it was also determined the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. And they, I don't believe they ever found the actual murder weapon, but they um, they came to the conclusion that it was probably... Um, some kind of hammer or our mm-hmm. um, handheld farm equipment something
1: like that yeah based on the size of the uh, wound they believe it was a hammer mm-hmm. in the trailer csi eventually
0: found blood stains using luminol and bits of scalp attached to forcibly ripped out hair and this was a match to suzette Troughton I believe they also found a roll of duct tape that had blood on the side of the roll and that belonged to Isabella so awful I mean what a day I mean could you I can't even imagine at the end of the day those those that CSI team it's just so horrific
1: the same thing with the jury yeah oh my gosh this was a lot for everybody involved obviously they're the victims their families and then every single person who had to have any sort of contact with this situation it's just it's so terrible Mm -hmm.
0: monday june 5th the next day the task force and csi headed to john robinson's second storage unit across state lines in missouri and this was storage unit e2 at Store more for less when they opened the unit again they, there was a ton of stuff in there. Um, but in the back corner, there were three 85-gallon metal barrels buried under clutter. These ones were wrapped in plastic and duct tape. And at one point, the barrels had started to leak. And John poured kitty litter around the base of the barrels to try to contain the leak and the smell of decomposition.
1: I can't even imagine... The feeling you would have seeing more barrels Mm-mm. I
0: know um there was a little excerpt in the book from the lady that managed the storage unit and she was the only civilian on site and she was there while they opened the unit and as soon as she saw the barrels, she said she she excused herself she didn't she didn't want to have to see what she you know because the papers had released what they found the day before and she didn't she didn't want to subject herself to to
1: that yeah obviously how scary to know that you saw this person and were feet away from them multiple times mm-hmm. while they went there mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: yeah in barrel number one was a fully dressed beverly bonner there were no defensive wounds and it was determined that blunt force trauma to the head was her cause of death In barrel number two was a fully dressed Sheila Faith and she was the only victim that actually had defensive wounds. Her forearm had been broken and same as the rest of the women, blunt force trauma to the head was her cause of death. And in barrel number three was Sheila's teenage daughter, Debbie Faith, and her cause of death was severe blunt force trauma to the head. At this point, they immediately raised John Robinson's bond to $5 million. Out of the eight missing women, only five have been found. And one of the women who hasn't been found is Lisa Stassi. And remember, she was the divorced single mother with a four-month-old infant named Tiffany, one of his first victims in the 80s. They both disappeared in 1985. We know John Robinson was the last person to see her alive and Tiffany alive for that matter. And he most likely murdered Lisa, but did baby Tiffany suffer the same fate? Well, the task force discovered that he fucking sold Tiffany to his brother for $5,500
1: This is what I just keep going over in my mind with this case, is that he literally did every fucking crime he could. Mm -hmm. He, extortion, he was a con man. He was most likely a drug dealer. He did petty shit for the mob when he was a teen. Financial crimes, lying about completely ridiculous schemes and inventions and all this bullshit, and then also these horrible, brutal murders. Mm -hmm. And also, oh, also, he kidnapped a baby and sold her to his brother, which also means he completely deceived his own brother for 15 years. Like, is there a single crime this guy didn't fucking do? Like, honestly, is there a crime he didn't do?
0: I don't think so. I don't think so. And I'm glad you said that because I want to make it clear that his brother, Don, did not know the situation. Him and his wife had been trying to adopt for a while when he got the call from John Robinson. John had said through his philanthropic connections, he'd found a baby girl available for adoption. He told them tragically her mother had committed suicide and she ended up at um, an adoption center... Um, they, Don and his wife renamed her Heather Tiffany and they headed back to Chicago, um, with Heather Tiffany and they raised her later, a few days later, a week later, I don't know. John sent official adoption papers in the mail. The papers were signed by two attorneys, Doug Wood and Ronald Wood, surprisingly no relation there. And judge Robinson. And they were also signed by um, a notary public. All three of the signatures had been forged by Robinson. All three of them had been forged. And the notary public, it was um, one of his mistresses that she had no idea what she was doing, but he had um, convinced her to sign some paper. She wasn't even a notary public at all. And disgustingly the night that John presented baby Tiffany to her new adoptive parents the Robinson family took photos and there is a picture of John Robinson holding Tiffany on his lap with a big huge proud smile on his face and this was only hours after he more than likely had murdered Lisa Stassi who his who was her biological mother
1: yeah it's uh truly terrifying the picture it it just it's so disturbing
0: it really is um so you know when this all this was happening in 2000 2002 um, tiffany found out the tragic circumstances of her adoption and i'll call her heather tiffany because that is her name she was Mm -hmm. 15 at the time And she decided to stay with her adoptive parents, the Robinsons. Um, Her biological father, Carl Stassi, did not want to fight for custody. He did want to be part of her life, but he did not want custody. Um, And she also loved her adoptive parents. They were her family. And they, as far as we know, were lovely parents. And um, she had a lovely upbringing Uh, So later in Heather Tiffany's life, she did connect with her biological relatives, and I believe they maintained a relationship. And um, at one point, Heather Tiffany sued the hospital and the social worker who introduced her birth mother to John Robinson, and they eventually settled out of court.
1: Yeah, it kind of doesn't seem like they did their due diligence there on checking up on Robinson. Uh, so devast. That's just so devastating. What a horrific thing to find out. Yeah, Heather Tiffany always knew that she was adopted, but mm-hmm. no one's going to think that that is their adoption story. Yeah, they were
0: very open about the fact that she had
1: been adopted. So
0: John Robinson, this fucking evil Hamburglar looking
1: fucking motherfucker. I hate him so much. He does look like the Hamburglar. Yes, but like evil. I think the Hamburglar is supposed to be a bad guy. Yeah, he is the bad
0: guy. He is the bad guy. Um, well, he refused to cooperate with authorities. He did not share any information. He d- he was like tight lipped, and in fact, he did his very best to delay the trial, and he succeeded for two years. God, I hate that. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, his first trial began in October two thousand and two in Kansas. John's trial still holds a record for the longest trial ever held in Kansas to this day, and it cost taxpayers about a million dollars.
1: I believe it. This man committed so many crimes for so long. I can imagine that this trial and all of it took a ton of time and energy.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, The judge did his best to kind of control the trial, but it was basically a circus, Laura Remington, the woman from Nova Scotia, she testified. Uh, She, I believe, was the first or second witness to be called by the prosecution. And unbeknownst to her, during her testimony, they played a tape that had been recorded by the task force. And this was a phone call between her and John Robinson. And this was a very... BDSM phone call it was a session um, between the two of them and Laura was so embarrassed it was being played in open court and she had no idea
1: I don't know why they did that
0: I don't know why
1: I, I I think it's fucked up that they didn't even tell her that's what I'm saying I don't know why they thought that it would benefit anybody for it to be a complete shock to her that just seems not beneficial to their side of the case at all. They should have told her. Yeah. At least then she would have been mentally prepared for it. I mean, this is traumatizing enough without having something like that just dropped in your lap. Right. Because
0: I, I just think, and this is what John Douglas kind of insinuated in the book is at this point in time, at least, the BDSM community was kind of like escapism and um this was really 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 humiliating to lore to have her mm-hmm. most private moments aired in yeah in front of everybody it actually it it more than embarrassed her it pissed her off and she actually said she wasn't coming back to testify the next day and was arrested for contempt of court and they had her st- instead of staying in her hotel room that night she stayed overnight in the jail. And then came back and finished her final day of testimony. Actually, if this isn't the most metal thing I've ever heard, um, like, I don't know what it is. She was actually so pissed after the, the entire trial was over and she went back to Nova Scotia. She sent the entirety of the Kansas <laughs> Justice Department a scathing email just fucking ripping them a new one. And she literally, quote, told them that she hated them all.
1: I love that part to whom it may concern <laughs> fuck you
0: <laughs> yeah uh. i um i'm just like wow okay i um, mean and she really tried to do her best to to help them in their investigation and they just kind of exactly. stabbed her in the back really i think
1: She really put herself out there. She Mm -hmm. communicated with this piece of shit monster Mm -hmm. over an extended period of time to try Mm -hmm. to help the investigation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then instead of people being upfront and honest with her about what was going to happen when she was, uh, you know, in court, they kind of deceived her in that way. I just, Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure why they did it. I don't know the thinking. Maybe there was a reason behind it. Maybe they couldn't tell her everything. Maybe they couldn't disclose. I don't know, but uh, it's... It was just a fucked up situation. But I mean, I have to appreciate that kind of rage in a person. Yeah. I feel it. Yeah. I get it.
0: Another shocking moment during the trial was when they played the sex tape they found in the storage unit. And this was the tape that John Robinson and Suzette Troughton had made. On the tape, Suzette consensually participated in BDSM with John Robinson. It was very clear that she was they're willing, and that Mm -hmm. um, she she was not being coerced or forced to do anything that she didn't want to do. The prosecution wanted to play six minutes of the tape, but the defense argued that six minutes would be taken out of context and would portray their client in a negative light. So they
1: played... Um, uh, (laughs) I don't think that anybody needs help in portraying him in a negative light but okay sorry go on
0: um he did that just fine all by himself so they they played the entire 39 minutes um too long way too long and there was a nun in the audience um of the trial which look you're there on that i don't like yeah, I get it. You're a nun. But, like, you know what this trial is about. She was there specifically to have – if he got the death penalty.
1: Yes. She was – the nun was provided because it – or the nun was there because it was a um, death penalty case. Okay. Um. So, yeah, that
0: sucks for her. Um. There was elderly people. Yeah. Suzette's family was in the audience. The jurors were traumatized. The lawyers and the judge looked down as if they like had something uh, more important to do it was um it was traumatizing for everybody and but here's the grossest fucking thing during the trial john robertson was pretty somber he was a wilted pale version of the once charming con man but the day they showed the tape he was so fucking perked up this disgusting piece of shit seemed happy he even smiled he leaned over as far as he could to see as much of the tape as he could he he some in the courtroom say he even looked proud of himself yeah uh he's disgusting this was the only part of the trial that Nancy, his wife, wasn't
1: present for. Oh, Nancy. Um, at the end of the tape was a short clip of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So apparently Robinson had taped over the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie to make the sex tape. And like uh douglas said in his book it was a clear representation of the two sides of john robinson like we said earlier the family man versus a sadistic murderer the tape itself is so jarring and then all of a sudden it freaking clicks over to fucking gene wilder i mean come on yeah yeah it's so so disturbing i've i know i already said it but i pity i just feel so bad for this jury and we skipped over the part
0: in the book about the jury selection because it, it was a lot, but mm-hmm. they took, um, a really long time to select the jury specifically because this case was so gruesome. They needed to make sure that the jury was able to emotionally and mentally and physically handle the evidence that they were going to see in this case. And there were some jurors when they asked them certain questions, they said, no, I won't be able to handle that. And they excused themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Even more jarring than the homemade sex tape was when the prosecution played the crime scene videos of the barrels being opened by CSI, along with showing the jury and the court the autopsy photos of the victims.
1: Yeah, that's traumatic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Another bizarre thing that was going on. So during this trial, a local high school uh, was allowing their students to sit in on the trial to learn about the American judicial system, which is... The most kind of ridiculous thing I've ever heard, because there has to be a thousand other hundred other cases going on at that time that would have been more appropriate for students to sit in on. Traffic court. I don't know. There's not a traffic court in Kansas. There's not just somebody who robbed a Seven Eleven and nobody was hurt. I mean, come on. Uh, the judge did order everybody under the age of 18 to leave the courtroom the day the sex tape was played, mm-hmm. which good idea. But I just feel like this entire trial, nobody under the age of 18 should have been in there.
0: No. No, absolutely not. That's... Uh, what? Yeah. And this isn't like different culture another time. Like, yes, it was 20 years ago, but this wasn't like 1980s. This was like in the 2000s. I can't imagine. I was in high school during this time. I was getting ready to graduate. I I was a junior in high school, actually. I cannot mm-hmm. imagine... One, my parents allowing me to sit in on this trial, and two, my teacher wanting me, my civics teacher wanting to send us to this trial. Are you kidding me?
1: Yeah, I'm not really sure how that even happened. I'm not sure how the judge didn't take one look at him and tell him to get the hell out of there. What?
0: That's so bizarre. And altogether, the state called 110 witnesses, including Isabella Lewicka's parents, Don Robinson, Kathy Klingensmith, Barbara Sandry, Alicia Cox, and Vicki Newfield. I was actually shocked when I found out that Don, John Robinson's brother, I just didn't realize that Don and John, that's annoying. Um, When he was done testifying, he got off the stand and walked over and shook his brother's hand. And I don't know what What? yes and I don't know what context that was in kind of like like I could see it being in a context of a final farewell
1: yeah I don't remember that part at all
0: yeah I don't like that I don't know how I feel about that I feel like it's disrespectful to the
1: victims and not and his his adoptive daughter maybe it was kind of a like well, I don't know. I Obviously, I don't know you, so goodbye.
0: Yeah, I, and that's the only context I can really accept that as acceptable. Um, uh, It was weird. Um, the jury asked the prosecution to bring in the barrels during the trial to determine whether or not one man could have moved the barrels alone, and eventually mm-hmm. they did determine that it was possible.
1: Yeah, that was another sort of question in the air was, was there somebody helping? Mm-hmm. Because the barrels, obviously they're large barrels. They mm-hmm. have a somebody in them. They're heavy. Mm-hmm. There was that aspect. And then there was also the aspect, which could have just been a mix-up when you're talking. But when, um, when Lisa Stassi was on the phone with Betty and she said, they're here, mm-hmm. there was a lot of weight put on that. Yes. So they never discovered an accomplice i really hope that they're correct on that because that's a very scary thought
0: i'm glad you brought that up because i've thought a lot about the three women who have never been found and that is lisa stassi tiffany's biological mother a woman named katherine clampett and a woman named lisa godfrey which what we know of is potentially John Robinson's first victim. And having heard that on the phone call, Lisa said they are here. I'm wondering if, uh, because at the time, um, John Robinson said he was involved in, an like a European underground BDSM kind of cult, I believe it's called the International Cult, council members or something like that and I am wondering it's just a thought if he sold these poor women um to that council or or maybe sex trafficked them in some way and um m- maybe he didn't um, kill them
1: yeah, that was kind of another side quest that John Douglas took us on was that whole European sex cult where people apparently keep sex slaves, which was a very dark uh, section of the book, which we didn't really get into because I don't really think there's evidence of John Robinson being connected to that. It was just something that he kind of said alluded to mm-hmm. so or said. Um, that is a too dark of a thought for me to go down.
0: I know. So that is just a thought that I had when I read that she said they were here, and in combination yeah. of of her, her remains not being found, it, it it's it's probably not the case, but it's a possibility, and I, unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever know.
1: It's fair to mention it too, just so that we can stay um, thorough. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fair to mention so that we are thorough in our episodes on this topic
0: but yeah I my heart goes out to those those three women's families and those three women and um I know finding a loved one's remains isn't the closure that um a family going through this kind of torture uh wants but it is a little bit of closure just a little tiny piece of of closure and it's just terrible what John Robinson did to his community. So officially, John Robinson was tried for the murders of Suzette Troughton, Isabella LaWica, and Lisa Stassi, although they hadn't found her remains. And he was also charged with lesser Crimes like kidnapping, illegal adoption, and like a multitude of financial crimes. So this is what he was at, at trial for. The jury found John Robinson guilty on all charges. Yes. Yes, 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 they did. Um, And next, the sentencing, sentencing phase of the trial began. It was the first time in over two decades, a career that spanned over two decades, that D.A. Morrison asked for the death penalty on a case. Nancy argued against the death penalty. She pleaded that he was a great father, one who never missed his kids' sporting events or birthdays or any kind of events. Yes, he might have murdered women. Yes, he might have abused women. Yes, he might have victimized thousands of people throughout his life, but he was home every night. She argued that he was the best babysitter to his grandkids. And yes, he treated his victims like literal pieces of trash, but he only behaved that way during regular business hours. That must count for something, right? And after her testimony at the sentencing, the media kind of gave him a nickname, the 9-to-5 killer. And during her testimony, I find it interesting that the only time John Robinson publicly cried or showed any emotion during the trial was when Nancy mentioned his granddaughter visiting him in jail. Morrison argued that the defendant didn't cry for his victims. He only cried for himself. He only cared about himself. And DA Morrison closed with, quote, capital punishment was only for the most severe crimes and the very worst criminals. And if not John Robinson, then who?
1: Seriously, I I'm not really pro death penalty, but in a case like this, I, it's really hard to argue with a line like that. I, I agree. I
0: am not I'm not for the death penalty either, um, but it it <laughs>
1: exactly what you said. Like how can we how can we say otherwise? Yeah. These closing arguments were pretty intense. Mm -hmm. They had the barrels right next to them. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you mentioned
0: the barrels because after every few sentences, he would punctuate with a pounding on the barrel and it would make this drum-like echo throughout the courtroom and it, it, it sounded, even reading it, it was powerful.
1: Yeah, it really was powerful. The jury sentenced John Robinson to death for the murders of Suzette and Isabel and life in prison for the murder of Lisa Stassi because Kansas had abolished the death penalty at the time of Lisa's murder, but it had been reinstated during the time Suzette and Isabel were murdered. Yes.
0: Um, a few of the jurors after the trial, maybe years later told the media that if any, of John Robinson's children would have spoken on his behalf during the sentencing part of the trial to to just to plead to spare him from the death penalty they would have considered not giving him the death penalty but none of his children spoke on his de-
1: behalf on the trial and wasn't his daughter married to a police officer
0: um yes one of his daughters was i don't he had four children i believe he had two sons and two daughters One of his daughters was, she, I I actually think her name was Christy or Chrissy. Yeah, it was. I think it was Christy. She was a medical emergency worker and she was married to a police officer. And surprisingly, shockingly, she was the most outspoken in his defense of all of his children.
1: I think people just don't want to believe it. People don't want to believe something this bad about somebody that they love. And I get that denial, but... Mm -hmm. At a certain point, I mean, this evidence, it's a mountain of evidence. Like, There's no way you could have more evidence. Yeah. So once John Robinson was convicted in Kansas, the second
0: trial began across a state line in Missouri. Because remember, they found remains in Kansas and Missouri. So the farm was Mm -hmm. in Kansas, and the storage unit was in Missouri. But unlike Kansas, Missouri aggressively pursued capital punishment in cases like this. So Robinson's attorney did not want to go to trial. He was looking for a plea. Just as a reminder, this was a trial for the remaining five women. Three found in barrels in the Missouri storage unit, which were Beverly Bonner, Sheila Faith, and her teenage daughter Debbie Faith. And the earlier missing but presumed dead women, Paula Godfrey and Catherine Clampett, who we mentioned just a few minutes ago prosecutors in Missouri were looking for a plea which included John Robinson's disclose the location of Lisa Stassi Paula Godfrey and Catherine Clampett the three women who disappeared in the 80s but an asshole to the very end Robinson fucking refused oh my god and why why would he refuse this he already has a death penalty
1: that, that really makes me more scared than anything about where they are. Well, and that's,
0: want... that's another piece of that what if puzzle when it came to sex trafficking. You know, what if he, but why wouldn't he just say I gave them to this underground cult? I don't know where
1: they are. Um, because then the cult might come after him. Oh, yeah, I guess. Um, and he's a fucking coward and a terrible piece of shit and not even a real human being. Yeah, I agree with all that. Sorry to sugarcoat it.
0: (laughs) Well, this put the prosecutor in somewhat of a pickle because they realized they would never find those poor women's remains without the help of Robinson. And so what they came to... Oh, this just, like, boils my blood. Technically, John Robinson pled guilty, but it was more in line with a no-contest plea... Um, It was recorded on the record as a guilty plea. However, it was worded in a way that Robinson wasn't admitting guilt. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: He was acknowledging the state of Missouri had enough evidence to possibly convict him of the murders. So he basically said, well, I'm guilty because they have a lot of evidence. Not that I did it. But they have Mm -hmm. evidence that I might have done it, which is the classic fucking John piece of shit Robinson skirting accountability once again.
1: Yeah, this motherfucker never ever shows remorse, takes responsibility. Mm -mm. The jury found him guilty and Robinson received a life sentence without the possibility of parole for each of the five murders. Yeah, I can get down with that sentence for sure. It's what he deserved.
0: Yeah. John Robinson, the despicable, prolific human piece of shit, is still alive and he is sitting on Kansas's death row. He spends 23 hours a day in an 8 by 10 cell along with the eight other inmates on death row. So, Kansas, um, they have not executed a death row prisoner since the case that um, Truman Capote rolled, uh, wrote about in Cold Blood, I think I mm-hmm. believe those parolees that murdered that family in Kansas were the last people mm-hmm. to be sentenced to death or put to death, excuse me, by Kansas, the state of Kansas. And if you haven't read that book, read it. Yeah, it's. It, we've both read it. It's it's a great book. Um, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's
1: a, it's a book everybody reads for a reason. Also... Just to piss everybody off a little bit more, in March of 2022, Robinson returned to court in an attempt to overturn his death penalty conviction, which uh, amp.kansascity.com news wrote about in their local crime news article, and I found just kind of wanted to see if there were any updates, and that was not the update I was looking for, but that's what I found
0: yeah and tiffany had a good point we talked about uh, had a little conversation at the end of recording part one and she had a good point about just abolishing the death penalty based on the fact that these prisoners who are guilty beyond a, a reasonable doubt have nothing mm-hmm. to overturn mm-hmm.
1: yeah when you when you are uh sitting on death row you can keep coming back over and over and over again and people have to keep Mm -hmm. speaking up about why you shouldn't be released and it's just like traumatizing victims all over again it's just giving these motherfuckers something to do Mm -hmm. giving them a hobby while they're in prison waiting so if for no other reason if we didn't have the death penalty they wouldn't be able to do this kind of bullshit
0: yeah exactly not to mention you know taxpayers dollars going to all of these appeals for people who no i get it like like i said i'm not for the death penalty because i don't think our government should be in a position to potentially kill an innocent person uh but john robinson is not an innocent
1: man no i totally want john robinson to just die like i totally want john robinson to go away yes but the fact that he could put everybody through this kind of bullshit like what he's doing right now is Mm -hmm. not fair no it's not it's not fair at all Um,
0: And at the end of the book, John Douglas does what John Douglas does best, and he shared just a little insight on John Robinson's potential profile as a serial killer. He surmised that it might have been the stark contrast that led John Robinson to becoming a serial killer, forcing himself to be a loving father and grandfather, a provider and a husband, could have caused a power keg inside Robinson until an explosive explosion of hatred, rage, violence, and resentment was inevitable. John Douglas also said it's impossible to say. Uh, had he not forced the domestic lifestyle on himself, none of this would have happened. And I have to wonder if it wasn't for the theatrics of having a family, how many more? lives would john robinson have ruined because in a way his family kept him tethered to a normalcy quote unquote normalcy a, a large percentage of the time
1: yeah if he were just free to his own devices exactly if god he had, only knows what he would have been doing if, if he just had free reign 24 hours a day yeah
0: and he was kind of tethered geographically too Imagine Mm -hmm. if he was just, like, free to roam about. No, thank you. No, absolutely no fucking thank you. Um, After 41 years of marriage, Nancy Robinson divorced John Robinson, stating incompatibility and irreconcilable differences. I don't understand why it took Nancy 41 years to divorce John Robinson. I have a little compassion for Nancy because he was using her and his kids as a front to appear normal just like TK did Mm -hmm. and some John Douglas considered her to be a victim some could consider that but I had a hard time processing John's family's behavior during the trial I get the shock of it all His family saw one side of him. His victim saw another totally, completely different side. And I understand that's hard to process. But the fact that one of his daughters and Nancy, his wife, were fiercely defending him, that's hard for me to accept.
1: Yeah. And have I just, am I just completely desensitized because of all the true crime content? But I could find out anything about anybody and I'd be like, maybe. Maybe. Uh, yeah like it not be a shock I maybe we are desensitized I just don't think that if somebody pulled multiple barrels of human remains out of somebody that I knew's property I could defend them I mean no way at a certain point you have to these like take off these blinders this man is a monster and I know it's devastating to the family that he was also a part of but it's just the truth he was a monster he Mm -hmm. murdered innocent people Mm -hmm. who were just trying to live their life and experience something outside of the everyday everyday life they just wanted to do something new
0: exactly it's like
1: the saddest part about this is these people were just trying to make a connection with somebody Mm -hmm. I mean that's not the saddest part but one of the saddest parts is they these people were just trying to make a connection they just wanted to do something different yeah They reached out to John Robinson to have this kind of special experience, this Mm -hmm. unique experience, and he totally took advantage of that like so many of these kind of people do.
0: A hundred percent. And I know his family loved the version of John Robinson they knew, but he, like you said, he murdered eight women that we know of. He stuffed them in barrels, disposed of them like trash, He cashed their disability and alimony checks. He tortured devastated family members with fake letters for years. He wasn't going to stop unless he died or was caught. And to me, all that evil outweighs any good that he might have tried to be.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree with you. (laughs) <laughs> the evil he did far outweighed any good no. and he wasn't even that good of a husband or a dad he just didn't kill his family yeah he was just there congratulations doing the bare minimum bare makes you a great dad
0: by the way he wasn't a good husband at all No, he
1: cheated on his wife multiple times and she knew yeah another interesting thing that um i kept thinking about because douglas like we have said it went on to so many side quests John Douglas went on all these side quests and he compared him to every single serial killer except BTK, which was surprising to me because to me the whole time this guy reminded me of BTK. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. They were both super compartmentalized. They both like lived out these sexual fantasies that were, you know, outside the quote unquote norm. That was kind of how they were both seen, you know, and they were both fucking terrible monsters, murderers. They were just seemed so similar to me. Yeah, but that's just a side
0: note. I th- I also noticed that I found that interesting. He compared him to Gacy over BTK. I mean, and look, he's mm-hmm. the professional, obviously, but I, it was hard for me not to make the comparisons between John Robinson and BTK. Yeah, totally. And I and and speaking of the the subculture of BDSM, I want to just touch on that aspect of the case really quickly. We do not kink shame here. Whatever you're into, as long as all parties are practicing consent and responsibility, you do you. But John Robinson hated and objectified women. He absolutely found a place to hide within the BDSM community. And what I mean by that is he used it as a means to an end for targeting victims for the purpose of financially, emotionally, sexually, and physically abusing them john robinson consistently violated his victim's consent and trust and i don't know m- much about bdsm but i do know that trust communication respect consent and safe words are the number one priority in participation you cannot participate in bdsm without trust and respect and consent it just it's it's It's, you can't do it. And I know the BDSM committee would not claim this fucking loser. And I found it frustrating and annoying that at the time of the trial, the public, and even during the trial, they put too much emphasis on the BDSM aspect of this because ultimately this wasn't about the BDSM subculture. This was about eight beautiful women who were just trying to live their lives, like Tiffany said, they were looking to better themselves. They were looking to find themselves. They were looking to live life to the fullest. And they were discarded like trash when a monster decided he had no more use for them. That's what this is about. It's not about BDSM.
1: Yeah, I agree. that, And that's what I was trying to say, is these people were just trying to make a, a connection and maybe not the typical way. Mm-hmm. But they went for it they were really trying to live their lives the way they wanted to live them Mm -hmm. which I have to respect people that are willing to put themselves out there in that way and that makes me even more mad that they were victimized like this like I fucking hate this guy I do too John Douglas I feel like did a really good job where he was just telling the facts he did not seem to judge this community at all he spoke highly of every woman who was in this book Mm -hmm. every person that he mentioned he spoke kindly of he was respectful he seemed to have no judgment on bdsm the only person that he fucking clearly hated (laughs) was john robinson
0: i couldn't agree with you more and i was gonna mention that i'm so glad you did because i think he did a really great job of not hyper focusing on bdsm because it wasn't Mm -hmm. it was a component but it wasn't the main component of this no, of
1: this case no. and i i appreciate something that. that robinson took advantage of absolutely it was something that robin took advantage of so that he could lure people to him absolutely
0: um and don't even get me started on a person like him having access to the internet which is 24 7 everything all of the time and we 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 constantly as people who use the internet have to deal with predators like this and watch out for predators like this so this is gonna. This is the closing of this two-part series. Um, I'm so glad that he is in prison. I'm so glad he doesn't have access to the internet because absolutely he would still be trying to scam people. Um, but I wanted to close this episode out with some tips to protect yourself online because I think it's important and I don't think we talk about it enough. Um, and one another great thing about John Douglas and what he did in this book is he included some tips base well these were tips from 20 years ago so they're a little outdated um but he did include tips on how to protect yourself on the internet so the first tip is never give out your personal information if you meet somebody in person go with a friend and always meet in a public place where other people are nearby. And don't forget to share your location also with other people.
1: You can do that through texting on your phone.
0: Totally. And even you can share the person, the information of the person you're meeting to um, Their information, like who they are. Um, be appropriately skeptical of everything you read online. Check out your potential date on social media ahead of time. And it's always a good idea when you are dating online to video chat the person before meeting in person to make sure they are who they say they are. Another good idea is to rely on your own form of transportation getting to and from a date. If you have children, please educate them on the dangers of the internet, including social media. Take an active role in their lives, know who their friends are, know who they're talking to, and know what they're doing on the internet. Um, It is so important. And these tips, just these alone could save lives. So I think that's a good, good place to close it out. Can I add one thing?
1: Of course. You did a great job.
0: Thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. And thank you all for bearing with this. This was a
1: beast yes thank you so much for joining us for these last two episodes uh we really appreciate all of our listeners yeah
0: yes uh our condolences go out to the victims and the victims families and um don't you ever forget love yourself lock your doors and listen to your gut cheers to that cheers to that